Hi guys and welcome to another uh, episode of Down to Business. Uh, quite privileged today, I've got two, I'm going to say legends of not only the uh, hunter wine industry but the wine industry in general uh, and some very successful business people in their own right. And today joining me is um, and Cole Peterson and Brian McWigan. And Cole, uh, a bit of a background, you know, started Peterson's, uh, well I'll say Peterson's winery but empire if you like in 1971. Uh, first vineyard uh, was produced, or first crop was produced in uh, 1981. You know, started from a, a tractor shed, fair to say, and converted that since into you know various vineyards, um, growth every year, the champagne house for anyone who's been up the Hunter. Uh, you know, bottling lines, properties, accommodation, restaurants, and 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 here today still uh, still going just as hard. So um, you know, we'll get a, a few points from Cole in a minute. And Brian needs no introduction. You know, started Wyndham Estate in 1970 and sold in 1990. In 1991, he started uh, Brian McWigan Wines, uh, started as a public company. I think the amazing story was in 1993, it was doing zero turnover to 2005, doing $458 million in turnover. Sold out in 2006 and has done many more things since. And ironically, the two of these uh, gentlemen now in business in many ventures together and it's uh, it's great to welcome them here to have uh, not only a good chat with good friends but you know realistically um, we can learn a lot from the many many years in business I'm sure many mistakes and many uh, <laughs> funny stories that you notice we'll share over a wine so hopefully you get a lot out of it but uh, welcome gents. Thank you. Thank you Andrew. Uh, how you been? You've gotten through you know a pretty tumultuous couple of years so tell That's me how right. things are. Well yeah. I think that uh, it's been tough, as you uh, uh, said, uh, but um, COVID has certainly changed the way that we live and the way that we eat and the way that we drink and uh, the way that we um, visit certain areas, particularly the vineyards, has suffered as a result of people being concerned about uh, getting the virus and spreading the virus, and therefore they have not been buying wine from the cellar door the way they have in the past. Mind you, that doesn't mean to say they have stopped drinking wine. Mm. They have, but uh, Andrew, they have been doing it uh, through their local bottler or their local hotel. So the wine industry sales are still bloody good and export is still good for those of us who deal uh, with English-speaking countries, it's so much easier than dealing with the others. And uh, so that's how we built one hell of a lot of business in the export trade, because uh, my old company uh, really still exports about 70% of what it produces. Only 30% is sold in Australia. Mm. Australia is very, very stiff competition. Uh, and you've got to eke out a role that's unique to yourself, otherwise some of the other boys will roll you over. Yeah. And uh, it's it's tough, tough, tough. Liquor business is tough. Um, and there are more and more restrictions coming on, which makes it even tougher. But those who want to fight and, uh, and develop new products, interesting products, uh, you know, the, the, we, we are in the fashion business, in the wine business, because uh, we have to react to what people want, not what we, the winemakers, think mm. that they should have. 
And there's a big difference normally between the two. And so we have to be out there, understand what they want, and make sure that through our process, that's what we give them. Yeah, I'll come back to that point, but it's a, it's a very good one. And, and before we get too far into it, Nicole, how, how are you going? What's the vintage like? Oh, vintage this year's been disastrous. Um, too much rain at the wrong time, or well, the rain kept going. Uh, so we basically lost 80% of our reds in the Hunter. We probably lost 60% of our reds at Mudgee. Uh, white's look good. Um, every time we talk to the boys in uh, Armadale, the grapes look fine up there, but uh, they're not going to get right because of the very cool growing season event, also being a thousand metres high. So every time I talk to the boys, I get off the phone, pick up the phone, ring with contacts in South Australia, and buy another heap of grapes down there for mm. this year. But, but it, it, it's ironic, you, you know, you come with those uh, those comments and uh, to many viewers are probably sitting there going, oh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> life's not good. But you've got a big view that, well, as you said just recently, when one door closes, another one opens. Exactly. I mean, you don't sit there and say, oh, well, I'll wait 12 months. You know, we yeah. uh, have to keep be proactive. Uh, we have to adapt. And I think COVID has, you know, it has been very bad. Also uh, had a major impact on our business, but also made us adapt very quickly. Uh, and we'll come out of it a lot stronger than what we went into COVID. Mm. With different, uh, same philosophy about the quality of wine we make, etc. Uh, but our sales are up through the roof. Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's, it's you know, um, many of the viewers who watch this are small businesses, SMEs, you know, etc. And we try to give a bit so they can learn from. And, yes. you know, you guys will probably uh, forget more than I know. So, you know, you've been around for a long time. Not that you haven't still got that spring in your step and want to do more. But, you know, I think some of these points that you point, you know, you are alluding to already, let alone when we yeah. get through our questions, key things for people to, to look at. You know, we can't we can't dwell on things. We're, we're in the fashion game, as you said. And the one you said, Brian, about, you know, I see many businesses set up and they set up for their dream and what they want, but they forget that key thing about who's buying and what do they want. So important. I mean, selling, uh, the money coming in the door is just so important to the future of your business. You've got to have that cash coming in on a regular basis, and otherwise you just can't build a business. Mm -hmm. Particularly, uh, Andrew, in the wine industry, because it's such a long-term business, because you've got to have your, grow your grapes, make your wine, uh, mature your wine, and then sell it. So for a lot of products, Cole, it's three or four years before you're selling some of that produce. Not so with white, because white is much much quicker, but certainly with red, mm. it takes quite some time uh, for the reds to mature, uh, to be blended, bottled, and then get over the bottling operation and the filtration all that that takes place to make sure that our consumer gets a product that's always perfectly clean and beautiful to drink. Mm. Uh, it takes some doing and uh, we must make sure that all that's okay. And I think the other aspect with that, but is, and, and not just in the wine game, in, in business generally, but there are some brilliant winemakers in your industry yeah. that still haven't got a very good business, yeah, you know, or, or don't see through the hard times. You know, you guys yes. have, have seen many, many years of, of success, to be yeah. fair. You know, um, that's some of the things we want to uncover as to what you need to look beyond what you actually produce or what you actually do. Yes, well, there can be lots of people who are very, uh, very accomplished at their art, but then can't sell it and therefore make a gross profit 
let alone a net profit. Mm. Uh, and uh, therefore, that's why we need to be a family of professionals. Uh, we, of course, need to be good in viticulture, good in uh, the chemical process of making wine, then of bottling that wine, then of, of uh, packaging the wine, and then of selling it, and then of administering the whole process. Mm. So we've got a very complex sort of life, and that's why we need people like you, because any businessman who's worthy salt and is going to make a dollar has to have good people around him, mm. and he's got to have and a good administrator, accountant-type person sitting there with him to make sure that he doesn't go awry. Because you've got to keep up to date with what's happening uh, in the world of business, and uh, it's too much for winemakers to be experts in every other area of activity. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think um, one of my next questions, and I'll, I'll start with you, Carl. Um, you know, give me a bit of background, give the viewers a bit of background on, you know, I gave you a bit of a very quick intro on, since you've been in the wine game, what about the upbringing and how, you know, how you got ultimately into starting a vineyard? Well, I suppose the father was a chemist, by the, well, sorry, it was in the Second World War, by the time he was demobilised out of the Air Force, all the Air Force, Air Force settlements, or like the soldier settlements had disappeared, gone. So the Air Force put the father through pharmacy, but Dad's whole ambition was to be a farmer. So as soon as he finished his uh, pharmacy course, he went out to a place called Candos, where was a one chemist shop town. Spent three or four years there, then moved to Toronto, where was a one chemist shop town. Uh, as soon as he had made enough money, he wanted to be a farmer, so he had to have, be within one hour drive of his chemist shops, in case the chemist got sick, because by law you have to have a pharmacist yep. there. Uh, so for many weekends, I think two years, we looked at every either Saturday, Sunday, or both days, different properties. He walked onto the property at Mount View and bought it, but the intention was to run cattle, not to run grapes. <laughs> so years later, after running the cattle successfully for many years, uh, the, the size area he had of land didn't really uh, mean that the cattle were viable. Uh, at that time, the, the wine or grape boom has just started, so uh, Dad said, well, I'll plant a few grapes and I'll pay for the lady to look after my cattle for me. And so we basically, by default, got into the, yeah. the wine game. <laughs> so we planted the first few grapes from Williams and uh, I wanted to make it my, uh, what I did. Uh, so. I would take a few grapes every year and I'd send to different wineries to get made into wine for me in that first 10 year period. So we know we could, we could make a good wine. I suppose the, the classic ones, as you drive through our front gate, there's a Currajong tree and there was 10 rows of grapes there. So I said to my parents that I'd buy off them and get wine made. I sent uh, five rows to Murray Rolson, five rows to Ed Duo. We won the Hunter Valley Wine Show, New South Wales Wine Show and Canberra Wine Show with my red. Yeah, right. So to me, it was always the, the quality of the fruit is what stands out. So you can have the best winemaker in the world. And I say to my blokes now, I don't employ you for the, the good seasons. I employ you for a year like this, where you're going to turn <laughs> shit into something drinkable. <laughs> so we knew we could make good wine. And then in 1981, um, a few of the tanks I had made, we um, made our first vintage. Uh, two years later, we, we stopped selling more Williams, or they stopped buying our grapes. Uh, two years later, I did a, we did a bigger crush than Williams and went from there, but we always aimed from day one not to be the biggest, to be the best. And the philosophy was, well, two things. If we uh, can't sell it, we've got to drink it, so we'll make what we like ourselves. <laughs> that was the reverse way of doing things. And the other thing was, we said, once we put our name on the bottle, 
regardless of what variety of grapes, but also the quality of that wine has to be very, very good. So if you, yeah, we do have made mistakes, plenty of them, but you don't see the mistakes we make. But you learn from the mistakes. Oh, my word, you mm. never stop learning. Mm. And Brian, what about the same question to you? Um, uh, with what pretend, with what uh, emphasis do you need? Well, I, I guess what led you to, I mean, we said you opened Wyndham at, in 1970. Yeah. But what, what, what sort of, I mean, was it a family tradition? What brought you yeah, into this well, place? My story is a little similar to Coles, and uh, could I salute his father um, because he was a fantastic bloke, lovely bloke, who, by the way, my father talked to mm -hmm. about about grape grapes. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so Dad was in the wine industry. He worked for Penfolds Wines. Uh, it was a tradition that uh, your family followed you into Penfolds Wines, which I did in 1960 is when I started. And uh, then I worked for them as a winemaker for basically 10 years and uh, built up uh, Built up the winery in the Upper Hunter at uh, out at uh, uh, Wybong, and uh, we, we built the winery there, and uh, did all that viticulture and winemaking, and then I could see that the old company wasn't going as well as it used to go, and um, it was sold, by the way, in '73. And uh, so I had gotten out in '70, and uh, people who then bought my father's winery, then said, would you like to come on board as a partner? And so from that point, we built Wyndham up into different to Coal. I followed a different path because I knew with the number of people that we had to support that I needed good turnover uh, and a rather big business. And so we worked at that feverishly and encouraged lots of people to come to our cellar door facilities and uh, we built it up, built it up and produced some well-known products uh, that were well-known across Australia and uh, that's why someone came onto the share market and raided us in 1989 and we were forced really to sell out in 1990 mm. and that's when we started again because uh, I think second time around if you understand what's happening around you and make sure that you keep an eye out for all the good things and the bad things then next time around you'll be very careful mm. and uh, hopefully be more successful as a result of not doing the wrong things. So it's a matter of practice and who does what, when, how and why and uh, so um, the company then built up and built up over the years we took over company after company after company and got our turnover to as you said about 460 million dollars and we were making 50 million the year that uh, I then had a stroke and a heart attack mm -hmm. and they said because because our business as I said to you was mainly export so we were never out of planes my wife and myself and uh, so we're always traveling and always under pressure because you had to bring the bacon home for the investor in your company. Cole's got a family company which makes it a lot easier because he can explain to his wife over, over a lovely cocktail or whatever he's eating or nice beef that 
mother, the the money this year is not going to be as good. Sorry, baby. Sorry, sorry. But exactly, I I can't. I couldn't do that because I, I found third parties. I found one of the turns of my job was actually standing there once a year. I look forward to that, particularly when I had the money in the bag. <laughs> so I look forward to that, to be able to stand up there and say, we've done it for you, we've done it. We've you know, had another 40% increase in sales and the GP has been maintained or increased. Uh, and to tell people that and to have their eyes light up and people stop you in the street, because we had a lot of shareholders, People stop you in the street and say, oh, gee, it's going well, going well. And they were also people who were good ambassadors for your product, uh, being public listed. But we have, we have, we understand one another's position about a private company mm. versus a public company. Public company is good because it's great for the person who's the promoter because at the end of the day, you can cash your chips without having a terrible effect on the value of the business. Mm. But when you are the man and you're the only man who people know about, it's very difficult to sell that on. And it's very difficult for your family if they're forced to sell that on uh, following your demise. Yeah, and there's pros and cons to obviously any structure and any different business model. But I guess I guess the main thing and what you just told about both of you is to understand what your business model is and to make sure that you are staying true to it. If you try and, you know, you're set up for one, you're trying to dabble in the other, it's not going to work. Yeah. But uh, and then one of the things I'll just pick up on what you said, which too many people don't do this, but, you know, reflection and, and, and looking at what you could have done better or maybe what did work and why, etc. You know, I, I, a lot of people I work with say we build a career on mistakes and there's nothing wrong with that because we learn very quickly. But too many people don't actually look at it and make the same mistake again. Yeah. What, so, so it leads me into my question about, um, you know, you followed paths on, on family, et cetera. And I think I know the answer to this, but what kind of business education did you have? Oh, interesting. My father being a pharmacist, he was actually quite astute. He had a business as well, so he would look for a little niche market to do with chemist shops. And he set up an import company to import stuff out of Asia instead of going through drug houses in Australia, et cetera, in those days. So he set up a chemist buying group, uh, which still runs today. Uh, so he was always looking for something new. And the, the other thing he would do is that once they got up and running, and I'm very much in the same group, I completely lose interest in the same as my father did. So once it was up and running, Dad would put someone in there to, to do what needed to be done, and he'd go and find the next thing to go and do. And I'm definitely that same group, yep. uh, that once it's up and running, yep, it's working good, let's go and find something else to do. So I then, have, by doing that, has allowed me to employ some very, very good people who have been with me for 30 or 40 years who've been in business. So we have very, very low or no staff turnover in our senior people, never had in 40 years. Uh, and if I fall off the perch tomorrow, the business will still run because they know what they've got to do. It's been compartmentalised in a sense of, you know, the vineyards, the bottling lines, the wineries, the selling, etc., etc. But, you know, for every wrong reason, it works. Uh, and, you know, if I do get crook, whatever, it will run for 12 months, two years, three years without any real, uh, real hiccups. So we don't aim for much growth, we just aim for 5% a year, uh, probably running at 15% at the moment, uh, which is too much, uh, because as Brian was saying, it, it takes especially our bigger sales and our red wines, that uh, to make those good reds, by the time you grow the grapes, make the wine, put it in the barrels, 
bring it out, bottle it, keep it there for another 12 months, two years, three years. You're looking at seven or eight years. And it's not seven or eight years of wine in a bottle, it's seven or eight years of our stuff and my life in that bottle. <laughs> so we make that as a, a point, that's why I'm saying you only ever see our wine when our label on it guarantees the quality, you don't see the stuff we're not happy with. And so we, we, our philosophy went different, that we were never, never interested in growing, 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 growing. If I had to make a decision, I used to always joke, I was a great communist, I work on a five year plan, that okay, in five years time, this is where I want that business to be. And then that business supports the next business, the next business, and so, so it may be. So it was not a matter of, you know, other than keeping the bank happy, the taxation department happy, and buying my wife a new dress, etc. occasionally, we're all happy. So from your point of view, it was more having, I mean, you, you fortunately had your father that was quite astute, as you said, but uh, to me, I hear that as a very good mentor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I remember he said, he used to say to me, whatever you do, don't go and sell those big companies, because they own you, you don't own them. Well, that's a good segue to Brian. Yeah. You know, and, and what about, you know, from you getting into business? Because, I mean, the point I'm getting at, we see a lot of people that go into business because they're good at what they do. But it's a whole new ball game when you've actually got to make a business out of what you do. Yes, because you're good at a, a, a one component of the total business, mm. not of all the things that we've both talked about, you know, maturation, bitter culture, all those sorts of things that you have to worry about. Um, and uh, uh, for my own part, I, I was trained as a winemaker uh, in South Australia by Schubert. And, um, that, that's the maker Grange Hermity, so he had the best tutor you could have in Australia. And don't forget, in those days, there was no such thing as a winemaking school, especially at Penfolds. You, you were taught in-house, so Brian was taught by his father and Max Schubert. That's right, that's right. So Brian was involved in making the first Grange. Yeah, yeah. But don't be honest, Brian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am cold, you know what I <laughs> You know how modest I am. <laughs> uh, but um, I didn't have any business training. I hardly knew what gross profit was, but soon learned it's pretty um, simple to understand that. You know, you buy an X and sell it whatever you can, 5X if you can. But, but it's amazing you say that that's simple. I think you're probably downplaying that and you've picked it up or been, been helped on the way because the amount of people, that simple thing they get wrong in understanding the difference between gross profit and markup. Yeah. And you get it wrong. <laughs> it can cost you a lot of money. Yes, you're in the pool, aren't you? Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, uh, <clears throat> maybe just had some uh, natural uh, capacity, as Collie has, uh, to understand that uh, you add up all the costs and make sure that you've got a margin that's good enough. But at the same time, uh, you've got to make sure you deliver, mm. not just mark up the cost, You've got to deliver a quality that is in step with the price that you are charging. And this is what uh, the industry, the wine industry, and many other, many other industries are all about because people are looking for the best value for money, mm. not just the best wine, the best value for money. And so that's why people regard some brands as better than others and other brands as better than others. And that's why we all are constantly looking to make better wine so that we can deliver to our consumer what he considers to be yeah. a good, a good a great value, great, great value for money. And I think that's a great point you raise, and I was going to allude there myself. You, you, you talk about what they consider 
yes. to be great value because too many businesses, it's about what they want to produce, as you said before, or the rest of it. And, and sometimes, you know, you know yourself, you've been out with people and they've selected the wine, you're probably thinking, oh, geez, yeah. that's, that's ordinary. But in their eyes, yeah. they think it's great, so let them, let them buy it, you know. So what is that value? Yeah, but Andrew, it's no different, really, to when people are buying a car, a handbag, pair of boots, shoes, whatever, uh, because people want value for money. Mm. They worked hard to make their, their, their uh, money, and so they want to make sure that they get what they perceive to be a bargain. And if you constantly offer that, well, then your product will sell well. And you've got to understand as a business owner what that value is right. in the eyes of the beholder, I guess. Because if you take them for a ride, as Cole's been saying, see, if he doesn't think that it's good enough for his label, he doesn't sell it. He decants it and... and it doesn't even get to the buying stage. doesn't get there, no, no, no. We've had grapes delivered from the vineyards. We've gone and looked and said, yeah, they're so-so. The grapes arrived at the winery. We took them straight to the back and dumped them. Because mm. your first loss is your best loss. Yeah. You then have got to turn into wine, yeah. make very average wine, then you've got to bottle it, you put your label on it, then you start, you've got to sell it, and all you do is ruin your reputation. Yeah. Yeah. But you can do that on a small scale like we are, you can't do that on a scale that Brian was. You have to get, have a market for all the product. Yeah. yeah. And which are different price points, etc. So I might just reiterate a couple of the points you've raised, raised there, you know, that reputation. Okay, about value. Uh, this is probably the first video we're having where we're actually tasting the, uh, the, the consumer products. This is great. But I think also one of the key things you said is coming into business, you didn't have a business background. And you've mentioned already, Brian, having the right people around you, that, and, and Cole's the same at his senior team. So whether that's internal, whether that's external. You know, I often say having a coach, we have coach for sporting teams, we have coaches for kids. Coaching in business, what's different? The, the problem is these days is that everyone's a coach, so you've got to then decipher through it. Or the other key one is the mental. And I think someone being independent, someone who's trodden that way before, may not be right every time, but can give you a bit of guidance yeah. for small business owners and, and even large business owners, but to me, that's just a must. Of course it is. It's just like Cole's saying about having the right winemaker, the right viticulturalist. It must have the money man they're right by your shoulder, right there. Not to take over things, because a lot of accountants and administrators want to take over the whole bloody shooting match. They need to be in their spot, but the person who's out the front has got to make sure that he does the main job. The main job is selling the stock at a gross profit that's right for the business. Yeah. And that's why this man here can step into that and make sure that all those criteria are being met and continue to be met. Mm, beautiful. So I guess uh, we, we might have touched on a few of these things around what you love and the rest of it, and, 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 and you know, you've been doing it for a long time, but after all these years, how do you continually stay ahead of the game? And would that be from a market point of view or just your own energy levels? <laughs> Well, actually, from my point of view, I think it's more the point that, as I said, we have very, very good, long-serving, loyal staff, and they are as passionate, enthusiastic, and even more so than what I am at times about my own business. And they take pride in what they do. They're very, uh, very, very, pro very proud people. 
and they want to make make and do and give us the best product we can. So it goes all the way through for the Jamie growing the grapes, or Ross growing the grapes, and Robin into the wine with the wine bank making team and then to the bottling line. So we have our own bottling line because the first couple of wines we had done commercially, they were stuffed up. So what do you do? You gotta put your own bottling line in. So we control our own business all the way through from probably 60% of our grapes through to uh, the finished product. We sell all our own product. We don't sell the big liquor chain, so I have my own wholesale company, so I can choose where we sell the wine to. Uh, and 90% of our sales are through uh, our cellar door, stroke wine club, etc. And the most important person, you know, ultimately in my company is those sales girls and boys at that front counter, making sure that when someone walks in that door, they are looked after. Because yeah, you, it's like a restaurant, you go there once, you can have 100 good meals, one bad one, and remember the bad one. Mm-hmm. When people come to the cellar doors, I go to four or five cellar doors, if you're then lucky enough that they will come in and try your cellar door, you're going to make sure that your staff are client and look after them. They keep one of the other cellar doors out the door, sorry, and we become one of their regular ones they go to. So you're always making sure, and this is my staff are very, very good at, um, is looking after the customer. Mm. And that's, that's the experience they want. They can go to one of the liquor shops and buy wine at a price. One of the first questions they ask us is, oh, can we buy your wine at Dan Murphy's? So they're away for the weekend, got rid of the kids, up with a group of friends, they want to buy something they can take back to Sydney and have a dinner party to get next to it. Remember we went to that place called Peter's and those bloody idiots there, blah, 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 they tell the story for us. So we've never advertised. It's always word of mouth and just having a good product. So you know, ultimately if you don't, I use the analysis if you have two cogs, you take one tooth off, the whole lot stops. So it's an integrated vertical business where we control everything ourselves. Uh, and it, it works. And it, you know, we took one of those teeth off. It's a, the grapes weren't that good of quality. We don't make the wine. If the sound say goes wrong, so ultimately, which is lucky and have been very fortunate over the years that we've made far more right decisions than we've made wrong decisions. And don't get me wrong, we've made some classic blunders. Mm. But don't forget that what he does and what we all do, I think, is to make sure that each one of those departments has a structure within it where uh, that person gets a real kick uh, when he's very successful because he's seen as an important cog in the whole world. And that's what, empowerment. Must, that's what you must share with your staff. Make them feel as though they are just the keys and they are the important mm. people. And uh, I've said that so many times. I haven't said it to the accountants, but uh, because they'll tell the board I'm saying that. But uh, uh, everybody has be has got to be given job satisfaction, that so that when he comes to work, he knows that his boss, who is getting satisfaction by building the business and making it better, selling more wine, selling at better prices, etc., etc. Yeah. Everybody is a partner in that business. And if the heads of each department and the structure underneath them are all uh, or f- all feel that they are needed at this job, they that they are, are recognised for the job they're doing, well, they will continue to work for you. You've got to sharpen that up every now and again mm. because everyone's ambition is different, and you need to appease that from time to time. 
by giving them whatever it is, overseas trips, a new car. Incentives. Yeah. 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 No, I think it's a great one. I think um, without them probably realising, you know, you've probably just covered off the balanced scorecard and, you know, always work with businesses where a lot of them try to manage their business off just the finance results and say, well, at the end of the day, the finance is an outcome of the people being right, the customers and product and your processes and systems, you know, which you've just, in, in a few words, reiterated. So that's yeah. uh, very good. I, I guess um, looking at uh, your, your industry, you're in a very competitive industry. Yeah, as you said, Australia is extremely competitive. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to get you to, uh, you know, be, be too humble here. I'm being honest. How have you managed to stand out? I mean, you've mentioned customer satisfaction and our quality of our product. But, you know, everyone's got an opinion. That's probably a good and bad thing. Yeah. So, but it's not so much of whether people agree, you know, whether you're the best or the brightest or whatever it may be. But the reality is you've stood the test of time, year in, year out, for a long time. So how have you managed to stand out? Yes, yes. Well, um, one thing that has been happening over the last, I don't know, 20 years, I guess, is the corporatisation of the wine industry. And I think this applies to, Andrew, a lot of industries where people buy out other people and they buy out other people and it just goes on. Uh, and the thing that is key to all this is the passion from the top. Because if you consider yourself to be under peak pressure all the time, which you are, which you are certainly in a public company, not so much in a private company, but really, if you've got that in your heart, then you will be uh, moving the business along all the time because that is what turns you on. And uh, uh, as companies have bought out other companies and corporatized, the people who were leading that company are probably a family. And then all of a sudden, the acquirer says, I don't need you guys, I can go straight down to the the leading accountant, the leading production manager, etc., and decapitate the real brains of the business, the people who offer the value for money, because they know where the market's going. Mm. This is of key importance. You don't know where the market's going. How do you? How do you? How do you go through? Work your way through the shoals so that you don't end up with some rocks through the bottom of your boat. You have to know the leadership has to come from the person who plots the course. The person who's plotting the course must understand where that market's going. Mm. In the main, you get that from the market itself. So it's a matter of interpretation to make sure that you know exactly where the rocks are and so that you can navigate the, 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 the flow of the water so that you get through it. And I think that's been a big change. So I would have thought today, that's why it's doing so well. It's easier to do it today than it was 10, 15, 25 years ago, because that was the time when all these acquisitions were going, taking place. There are so few personalities left in the wine industry that give the wine a character, mm. because you need characters. Because if I can share a little truism with you here, the difference between good and very good wine, or the people who can understand the difference between good and very good wine, are very, very few. 
So it is the leadership and the commitment to showing that I'm making a value product for you and this is bloody good and I've won this price, I've won that price and that gives the consumer the feeling of confidence so that he continues to follow you. People who come for a corporation, by and large, do not have that commitment. They're not allowed to. They are stifled to agree. But <clears throat> that's why family companies can flourish. Mind you, they've got other problems, of course. Mm. But nevertheless, with a good leading person, as long as he can engender the next generation to do this exactly the same thing and understand the priorities, then that company will flourish. That's good. And I think the other thing is too, <coughs> as these corporations get bigger and bigger and bigger, it takes a lot longer to get decisions out of them. So I can make a decision in 10 seconds. I remember one time a bloke rang me and said, Colin, just give me your phone number to blow. So yeah, well, for Dave, he said, oh, he wants to set up a bottling line in China. And David worked for a very, very, very large company in Australia, one of the biggest wineries. He said, if I told this bloke to get, get in contact with the corporate people, it would take us six months to get up the ladder, and six months to come down, that's 12 months, and the answer would be no. If I gave him your phone, it was, if you won't stuff him around, you'll say yes or no. And the bloke ran me, I went down to saw him in South Australia, I said, yeah, mate, no problem, I don't repay for it, I'll take 20% equity in the company. We went to China and set up a bottling line. It took us four weeks. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of being small and privately owned, you can make those decisions. On the run. On, as you go. The, the, only, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, rather be, you know, you're making rash decisions. I think for the viewers, you've obviously got a fair bit of experience and a fair bit of say, you're all talking about there's not a lot of uh, red tape you have to step through or hierarchy. You can make that decision with freedom, but obviously you've got a lot of experience and know what risk to, yeah, to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. A, a couple of things just to point out there. I think, you know, we've, we've said uh, various times that know your business model, you know, absolutely know your business model, how it works, know your market, you know, and lead with passion. I think that's a couple of key things there. And make sure that you are spending time, not just in your ivory tower, but with your people and the yeah. people and take feedback. Yeah. Not only that, bringing this bloke in, this bloke here is... Uh, Sometimes he's a burden, sometimes, because he doesn't share the same enthusiasm. But if he's a person that you really respect, then it makes you really think twice. Because unless you can convince that guy that this is a really good idea and this is going to be a winner and how it's going to be a winner. From a numbers point of view, you mean? Yeah. Numbers. But also the other aspects thrown in because normally an administration accounting type person um, brings other things to the table. Personality, oh. mate. Personality. Well, that's right. <laughs> a few I mean, of them. Some of them are unshaven. <laughs> So I want to I want to touch another point because as I said at the start, you know, you two have uh, in, in quite a few ventures together now, and, and and I think it's a thing. Hopefully, it comes back, but it's a thing from the past where my belief is a lot of people, you know, used to didn't see each other as competitors; they saw each other as allies or you know fellow people we could build together with. These days, I see someone that goes, oh, I won't talk to them because they do what I do. And I'm yeah. going, well, they're not even near you or they're not in the same industry, but they're so scared of it. What, what's your view on competitors versus allies? 
I'll, end, I'll go first this one. From uh, the big issue, let's say, as far as I'm concerned, our area now has the fact that the personnel is, and I include when we go back, when the industry's uh, time started, we had Ryan McQuiggan, Murray Tyrrell, Len Evans, and Rosemount. Those, between those four companies, Hunter Valley grew 4% of Australia's grapes, and they sold 25% of Australia's wine. And they did it because they were all larger-than-life, gregarious, out-there people. The problem we now have is that these, as more and more corporates are taken over, the bigger companies that move into South Australia, ABIT, Rosemount, whatever, they're closing down, they're now just a label, and the attitude of those big corporations is we'll buy it, run it for four or five years, double production, double production, double production, and then piss it off and go and buy someone else. Because it's quicker for them to do that and try and build a brand. So what you now have left in the hundreds, a lot of smaller families, like it was, 40 years ago, and but they, a lot of those younger people have been brought up in that corporatised world. So, to me, you know, the, the area lacks, and not saying get the people, but the area now lacks those personalities, mm. and there's really not a lot of people coming through. You could say, well, they will grow into being Brian McQuiggins and Murray Tyrrells and Len Evans, etc. And I think the other thing is too that. It's more now. There's no big wineries left in the area. Uh, that they're all smaller families or smaller wineries. Uh, they're mainly focused now on their, their cellar doors, etc. You know, you can't you can hardly buy a bottle of Hunter Valley wine in Sydney restaurants because you know the South Australians that which have to sell their wine outside their cellar doors because they are in the real wine industry, not the tourist industry like we are. They come up here and they market together, they promote together, whatever. The Hunter Valley nowadays doesn't promote as a, a unit, etc., mm. like they used to in the old days. Which I think I'd agree, like across any industry for that matter. I mean, you know, yes, you've got to have respect of each other and yes, you've got to, uh, certain things you might want to protect, but in general, if an industry's going better or an area's going better, surely everyone's going better, generally. Exactly. That's right, because the, the successful one sucks the others along yeah. in his slipstream. Mm. Can I just introduce another issue, though, and that is when uh, strong people get together in a venture, uh, just how important, and I, I know of so many uh, fellows who've gone in a business together because they see this guy, one, this bloke sees this guy over here as having real talent, and this bloke over here sees this bloke as having real talent. But then they have real talent because they're successful. But then when you put them together, You've got the risk of that shattering into a thousand pieces. Power struggle. Power struggle, mm. which is very serious. And you have to make sure that you always leave room for your partner in the business to be able to shuffle a bit through his various decisions. Because it's always easy to say, oh, I didn't like that don't like that because we're all individuals we're all different and therefore we've got to make sure that we can make time to talk enough uh, compare notes enough always tell the other man what you're doing particularly if you don't if you don't agree on it at the start always tell him where you're up to so that each of you has his own sphere of influence and together, hopefully, they'll never come together mm. and crash. 
what you've got to do is use everybody's talents so that you build a better organisation, not an organisation that has internal issues. Because the failure of so many endeavours comes from the inside, not from the outside. It starts inside the company. That's why so many family companies go to the wall mm. because there's no patron there to make sure that everybody is directed in the right direction. I think that's a wonderful point on, you know, take that further to everyone knowing their roles and responsibilities yeah. and being clear it from the outset, get an agreement. Yes. I think the other thing is to, you know, often having some form of independence, and as we said before, a mentor, or it could be just someone coming in yes. to play a role of, of, you know, call it, Council, call it, yes. um, you know, uh, the ref, you know, whatever it may be, but yeah. to give a different perspective. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and to make sure that that person is acknowledged by both people, that's why it's a good idea if both people are on a par, that you have an independent person coming in and sharing. So that that person, and, and great honesty, absolutely. 100% honesty, mm. not hide this little bit over here or hide that little bit over there. Be just absolutely true to your word. And so that's why Colin and I, I don't think, I don't think we've had an argument yet, uh, but we've been no, we're, no. doing things together now, five years, yeah. six well, years. Right. You think we bothered you one years ago. Yeah, yeah. well, that's right, 10 years, 15 years. Yeah, 20 years ago. That's right, that's right. Yeah, Col actually... Um, actually leased part of our facilities and put his bottling line in our winery. Uh, and that worked so well because you did such a good job. And it was actually you paid a lot of money for it. And it, was, it was interesting <laughs> at the time because Brian and I were having a discussion one day and uh, we are talking about the bottling, etc. Cetera, et cetera, and Brian said, Colin, he said, the bottling of the wine is something I don't want to do. To me, that is the fixed cost of the business. Well, you're bottling the wine for me, I haven't got to worry about it, I can go out and sell more product. Value add. To find him roles where play he to your... the master salesman. Yep. All he wanted was, yes, there's a bottle was the wine in the bottle, he wants it there at a certain time, whatever, on a day to go and get the orders. Yeah. Nice yeah. to have to say to Brian, Brian, just because we've got the bottles doesn't mean you've got the wine. <laughs> Which are, yeah, and, and I mean, you know, <laughs> have a laugh, but you raise a really good point. So many small business owners, or, or I keep saying small business owners, but I think business owners generally don't get their head around. They think they need to be a part of everything. And, you know, if we introduce someone else, or even whether it be uh, insourced or outsourced, it's a cost. And I want to think of and go, well, hang on, that's a cost. You said a fixed cost. Fixed cost. What does that time or what does that extra capacity allow me to do to go and make money for? Yeah. And is it a specialist area where I don't have the expertise or have very little chance of attracting a person who can be as good as the contractor can mm. be? Very good. Look, we've spoken a fair bit about customers um, and, and how they keep coming back, but um, you know, I want to talk more about from a business owner's point of view, because some days it can be very hard and some days it can be very great, as you know. Um, your customer come back, what about what makes you keep coming back? What drives you? Well, from my point of view, I've never worked a day in my life because I've always had the attitude, I wake up in the morning, today I'm going to go and accomplish that, and I think that's part of the reason why I've been, like my father, when something gets going and running perfectly, I go and find a new challenge. If I was sitting there doing the same thing day after day, I, mean, I don't have an office, I can't use computers, I've got an old mobile phone that rings, I answer it. 
uh, and that's it. And I have people there to give me the information I need to make a decision in my head. Uh, and 95% of, 99% of our decisions that made in our company in my head. Uh, to the extent my daughter goes, Dad, I don't know how you do it. Um, so I think it's you know, critical, or very important, that you choose what you want to do and ha what part you want to play in your business. Do you want to oversee the whole lot or are you just happy to do a little part of it, etc.? You can't do, you cannot do everything mm. unless you have very, very, very good staff that make 99% of those decisions for you and you know they're going to make it right. But, it, but it's a good point because, you know, you think, why do you own a business? Generally, it's to make more money or to give yourself a better lifestyle or more time or whatever that may be. Yet too many people go into business and they're struggling for money and they've got no time and it's got them, you know, you know it's got them locked up. Um, that is the, because they want to control everything and the ego's get in the way, where realistically it should be if you put your investor's hat on, which, which Brian, you know about. But what, what about you, Brian? Well, I, I think this is a very important part of the business as well, understanding um, exactly how it all operates. And um, uh, from my point of view, uh, I uh, always had the, I tried to imagine at all times standing up in front of the AGM because that was my test, you know, that was my 100-yard sprint, yep. the final thing. And so I find it even hard now, now that I'm retired, to uh, sit and watch the television because I think I'm not doing enough to develop the business. I don't know how I was engendered with such a, with a drive to make sure that, you know, you did not leave any stone unturned. If I find that I've got a few hours, I feel guilty that I'm not doing anything. It's an amazing feeling because you just knew for all those 60, 70, 60 years that you had to do better. Do better in every phase. That is more profit, more more honour in terms of the way the wine came off the boiling line, uh, production rate per acre, uh, look at the place, look at your facilities, all those sorts of things. I just knew always that I had a whole host of things behind me pushing me down the track. And I still feel it today, Andrew. It's an amazing thing. Mm. And my wife says to me, relax, relax. But I still find it a driving force, even though I've been uh, retired now for 14 years. Well, it's I a funny definition of retirement, mate, but we'll... <laughs> well, I don't work any... I don't have really uh, any responsibility to get results mm. myself. He pushes uh, me for that. Yeah. <laughs> as, yes, as the tenant. As the tenant. It's lovely to flog a tenant along. Well, I think, but I think it's great. I think, you know, like understand what your role is and what you want to do. Make sure you've got good people around you to still get the task done. And it probably isn't work. It is that drive. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I suppose I've been very lucky because I said I've never worked a day in my life, but I've accomplished a lot because I want to have that drive to go and do something. But, Kyle, you're always there. See, you're always driving it. You're always going from one place to the other to the other. And you know what has to happen there. That's why you get upset with some of the blokes when they, when they don't do it according to Hoyle. 
Don't forget that. Don't get upset. Don't get upset. You tell them two or three times how you want it done. They yeah. don't do it. Then it's time for them to move on. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> making work then for me. That's right. But, I mean, but, my wife and daughter now say they've got a job is to go to Bunnings. Yeah, but then who do you complain to? You don't complain to your wife and daughter. You right. complain to your partner. And we can't be responsible. <laughs> we can't be responsible for your... So then we'll ask the name. I've only got a couple more for you. And we could talk all day. We obviously could. You've got a lot, a lot of experience. But um, one of the things I want to ask you, and maybe maybe too big a question, but what is your biggest mistake and or lesson as a business owner? You look at Either one. I'll go first. Go for it, Carl. Um, the biggest mistake that we ever made, they were changing from uh, a seminar used to be in Riesling bottles, the old-fashioned Riesling bottle. And the decision that they changed it basically to the burgundy bottle went with the screw caps. And Gary, my winemaker, who's a great old seminar man, came and said, Colin, I want to go and buy a heap of Riesling bottles and I want to make a similar in the style that was made in the old days for 10, 15 years and then release it and it'll be the epitome or whatever. I said, Gary, I said, we're not a similar company, we're a Chardonnay company, but if you want to go and do it, you go do it. So over three years, he made 3,000 cases of uh, 94, 95, 96 show reserve similars, we call them. 10 years, 12 years later, absolutely stunning wines. We sold them for $40 a bottle. I said to Gary, I don't want you to make similar, I want you to go and make red. And I want you to make red in the style that's going to age for 10 years. And we didn't do it. So it took, from a financial point of view, it, it, gave, it taught Gary a business lesson as to you've got to make what you think people are going to want. From a financial point of view, it probably cost me $5 million. <laughs> yeah. So what was the lesson? Next time, do what I want to do. No, do, do, do the both. <laughs> yeah. uh, back yourself? Yes. Sorry? Yes. Back yourself? I've always backed myself, and I've made, you know, um, right decisions, wrong decisions. That was just something that I was dead against, but I let Gary say, no, Gary, yeah. you do it. Yeah. So you want to do it, because you've got to let your staff have that freedom to, to go and do what they want to do. And I never brought up to Gary and said, no. you know, remember mentioned it again, years later, we keep selling the seminar, and you know, people come back in and buy it. But a current bottle of white wine is $25 or $30 yeah. with some of you know, 15-year-old absolutely stunning Semelons for $45 yeah. because we're, not, we we're never a Semelon company. If that had been a bottle of Chardonnay, 10, 12, 6, 7, 8-year-old, it would have been $78 a bottle. Yeah. The bottle that would have been... That's off. fashion for you. Mm. A change in the fashion. He knew that the fashion was X. The winemaker wanted to make Y because it was more akin to what his peers thought was the right thing to do. Because you know the difference, the story of the joke, what's the difference between God and a winemaker? God knows he's not a winemaker. <laughs> True. True. And Brian, what's your biggest mistake and or lesson? Aha. Uh -huh. Mine is quite different. I, I think there was a good question. And I didn't know what the answer was when I thought about it. But I soon remembered what mistake I made was to have a wrong shareholder. So that's why you've got to be so careful with who you get in the mm. bed with. 
because once you get in there, hard to get how out. the hell do you get out? Mm. And that is something where I then understood that next time I formed a company, I was going to make it a public company so that I didn't have the right, the, the, the wrong bloke sitting here. Yeah. Not that he was an accountant, he was just a dickhead. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, he was the one that had the money. But in some instances, sometimes, you need to trust people that they're going to be the same as the way they talk. But in so many cases, they are not. Mm. And um, so that was my biggest mistake. And it, it uh, brought an end to Wyndham. It caused the end of Wyndham. And uh, so whilst it didn't cost me a lot of money, it did in the fact that I was forced to do something that I didn't want to do because we were on the edge of going further and we were just on the takeoff uh, zone and we could have done so much better. Mm. But uh, uh, we got through all that and knew next time that it was going to be all public company so that, that uh, we didn't have a pain in the butt at the board meeting and uh, looking for a short-term gain when in actual fact you had to lay down the foundations of something that was going to last longer and be more profitable. And I think Brian's right because it's not the wine industry is not for short-term gain. It's not like computer stuff, etc., etc. We have nowadays. It's a building a reputation over many years, and uh, yeah, we set out from day one to build a reputation for our brand and our uh, the uh, financial gain in our company is not the land we own or anything else. It's actually in the bottles of wine sitting in that warehouse with our label on. Mm. It's the asset. You're absolutely mm. right. That's brilliant, gents. I mean, we've only touched on this much. Um, you know, we haven't touched on anything international or diversity in assets or anything. We might have to do another one of these, I think, because there's a fair bit more to cover. I think we'll do it, but uh, another couple of bottles of wine like that would be good. <laughs> uh, you can keep us oiled. We'll keep on talking. I think one thing, a couple of things I do want to reiterate, you know, some of the great things you said today is really, you know, understand your business model. Get the right people around you, whether that be internal, internal, external. Take the right advice, you know, horses for courses. Understand what your market wants, the fashion, as you said, you know, your all your reputation and your asset. Um, make sure you do have your checks and balances and give your staff a pick-me-up, give them some freedom, make sure they know that they're a key part of it, you know, but, but also drive with passion and love what you do. You know, I've probably missed a fair bit there, but there's some pretty telling points in that, and I, uh, I thoroughly appreciate the chat and appreciate your time. Uh, I'll say cheers to you, gents. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. It's been very, very, very enlightening. Really good. Until the uh, until the next episode, uh, cheers for joining us.